swing and a fly ball, pretty well hit left field. Conine towards the corner, Conine towards the wall, leaping and he got it! What a grab by Jeff Conine! Conine swings in the first pitch, high fly ball left field, deep, it's up, up and away, a home run for Jeff Conine! Some icing on the cake in the eighth inning! In right field, there's a ball hit by Jeff Conine, past the diving Eric Carros in the right field. Here as they start the bottom of the eighth inning off with Jeff Conine, who just ought to retire. He's four for four today. Just forget it. Just retire. He's in the Marlins Hall of Fame. Outside the box with Jeff Conine. It's July 31st. I'm Arm Layton. He's Jeff Conine. And wow, July 30th was nuts. Now we can breathe a little bit. Um, I'm at the National Card Convention. You're back home. And yesterday was as crazy of a deadline as uh, we could have seen. Yeah, I mean, I can't uh, in recent memory, in my memory of playing days or anything, I don't know if I've seen such a flurry of activity on uh, the last day uh, before the deadline. It was crazy yesterday. Uh, A lot of big moves, a lot of big uh, teams looking to improve their stock going into the last month of the season or the crazy uh, dog days of August and into the playoffs. It's going to be fun. I was just attached to my phone as I'm walking through the card convention and meeting people and uh, had my charger in my pocket, just looking for outlets everywhere to make sure I can, I can find anywhere to keep my phone just alive to keep up with all these moves. Cause it seems like every second it was going to tone down a little bit. It didn't, but what was nuts too is the days before were pretty crazy too. Generally it's almost up until the buzzer, but we had craziness each day and There's a lot to go through. We won't even be able to go through every trade. But speaking of last minute, you have an awesome story that we teased in last episode about a last minute deal that included you uh, sending you over to the Marlins. So I'm excited to get to that one. And then you were right about Scherzer going to the West Coast and specifically to one of those two teams with the Dodgers or three teams, the Dodgers, the Padres or the Giants. It was between the Dodgers and the Padres. Ultimately, the Dodgers were able to pull off what is a crazier deal than I would have ever imagined. Somehow they get Trey Turner in there as well. And now I had a bit of a, of a breakdown. I was really upset about it and our, on our group chat with the staff. And I was just like, this is terrible for baseball. I hate this. Uh, this is just way too much. They're 40 million over the luxury tax threshold. We need a hard cap. I was just losing my mind a little bit. Texted you. You talked me off the ledge a little bit about just how teams are vulnerable and anything can happen and it's baseball and you've seen teams like that go down. Uh, so can you kind of talk me off the ledge a little bit more and maybe anybody else that's listening about why, of course, this makes this Dodgers team the team to beat, but why are they beatable? Well, when you look at uh, just history, uh, the Dodgers have been the team to beat for the last seven, eight years now. Um, how many division titles have they won? Eight in a row, I think. Uh, so they've had a massive payroll. They've been over 300 million for years and years and years. Uh, I remember when they, you know, they took on the uh, Crawford contract and I mean, their payroll was astronomical, but that doesn't always equate to wins or championships as we've seen. So last year, 60 game season. All right. For me, that's an asterisk. That's not really a world series title. That's a shortened season. There's only, <laughs> there's 102 less games played. And for me, the Dodgers, yes, they won. They, they are declared World Series championships. But for me, that's not a real World Series yet. So you look forward to what they're doing now with this team. 
they've been stacked for, like I've said, seven, eight years now. They are the team to beat. They have been the team to beat, but they have yet to win a legitimate World Series. So that being said, the Yankees, same way. They've been uh, they've toned it down uh, uh, in recent years as far as their payroll. They used to have the most crazy payroll, uh, and they've only won one World Series since uh, 2001. They won in 2009. That's it. 20 years, they've only won one World Series, and they're always top three in payroll every single year. So just because the Dodgers have gone out, spent a lot of money, uh, they've got all-stars at every position, this undoubtedly is a huge trade. Max Scherzer is a big game postseason pitcher. Trey Turner, one of the best young players in the game right now, that will undoubtedly help their lineup. But I wouldn't just give them the World Series trophy just yet. And I don't know if I mentioned this stat line on Turner over his last 155 games. You talk about last year's shortened season. I always love to combine it because I feel like if you look at just last year's stats in a vacuum, how many players in your experience and how many times even do you have a bad start to a 60 game or your first 60 games are a little bit rough or your first 60 games are phenomenal. And now that's a season that we're looking at kind of crazy, but Turner over his last 155 games, 327 batting average, 30 home runs, 33 stolen bases. I mean, this guy's now in, in the tier one, top three shortstops in baseball. And now, oh, yeah, that Corey Seager guy, move him over to second base and he'll be fine over there. But the crazy thing is that now maybe the biggest weakness in their lineup is Cody Bellinger. And I gave you some film study on Cody Bellinger. And you looked at it from this is obviously just video from this year. He's always had an unorthodox swing. He's always had an unorthodox setup. Uh, But right now, it seems like he is struggling as much as he ever has. It seems like there's a lot of moving parts to time up. It seems very difficult to hit the way he does from a major leaguer's perspective, from what you saw. What's going on with Cody Bellinger and can he get out of this? Well, you know, you look at his setup. His setup is probably the most simple setup of anybody in the big leagues. He just stands straight up and puts the bat almost on his shoulder, but just uh, there's no movement. It's just it looks like he's almost sleeping up there. So, But to get into that hitting position, there's got, like you said, a lot of moving parts to happen to get uh, to the contact point of the baseball just because he's so stationary and he's so upright. So you've got to get into your legs a little bit somehow. you got to take a big stride. Uh, You've got to get that bat off the shoulder and into a hitting position. So a few years ago, MVP Cody Bellinger had it all timed up, and it is a powerful swing when it's timed up Mm -hmm. uh, because of uh, when you're standing so upright, when you get into that hitting position, it's a big load. There's a lot going on, so you got a lot of momentum going into the strike zone. Well, right now, his timing isn't great, and I suspect that there's a lot going on mentally that is just tearing up his uh, performance. So – when you start struggling with a swing like that and you know it's been successful in the past, you want to stick with it. But at the same time, you might have to make little tweaks and adjustments to try to get out of that hole you're digging yourself in. And as a big league hitter, that uh, could be a significant hole. So, you know, when we get into these slumps, we try to make little adjustments to get out of them when uh, most often you're, you're getting further and further away from what got you there. So Cody Bellinger, I think, is probably more of a thought process uh, error in uh, his setup and his uh, plan of attack for pitches that's kind of creating all these problems swing-wise. So if he gets right mentally, I can see him getting back on track. And if they get him back on track toward the end, uh, it might be lights out. 
Yeah. I mean, he's the type of guy too, where you, you can see the frustration, but he seems to be keeping it together. You know, you're not seeing him really just lose it on the field, but you could definitely see it in his eyes, but it's starting to affect him defensively a little bit too. I don't know if you saw the play he had at first base, but he threw it into oblivion uh, when he was trying to throw it over to third. One of the worst throws I've ever seen. He said it slipped out of his hand. I think it did, uh, but that's not really like him. Uh, you're seeing it affect him in the field. He's a great center fielder. He's a great first baseman, but in your experience too, when you're struggling at the plate, does that carry over into the field? Sometimes, you know, sometimes because we're such an offensive sport, you know, you're basically if you hit, you play, they'll find you a position if you can hit. So that is the basically the, the biggest thing, especially with a power guy like him. So, you know, if you're a, a multi awesome dimensional shortstop and you, you don't really hit for power, or you hit for high average, you know, there's defensive plus positions, a catcher. They don't really mind if you don't hit that much if you're a catcher. You don't have or, to hit at all. Right. Or, you know, a phenomenal defensive center fielder. They don't care about that too much. But when you look at a guy like Cody Bellinger, he's got a hit. And since he puts that burden on himself, he's an MVP just uh, two years uh, prior. When you put that burden on yourself and you're thinking about hitting all the time, it's definitely going to affect your outfield play, your first base play, because you want to get that right. That's the first and foremost thing as a hitter you want to get right is especially a, a power guy like him who did hit for average, high average. Now he's, it's just unraveled. So I'm sure it's affecting his whole game. And even when he goes home, he's in, he's in dire straits. A hundred percent. And you mentioned the mental aspect of it. When we were looking at some of that video, just some of the swings that he was taking with two strikes, those weren't Cody Bellinger swings. Those were a guy that's kind of, as, as I always say with Griffin, Griffin always uses this term domed up. But when, when you're really going through it, you're just in your own head at the plate. And he seems like a guy that's just domed up right there, but hopefully he, he works it out. I'm not rooting for the Dodgers. I'm actively rooting for the giants just because I, I don't want to see a team that's 40 million over the luxury tax win it. Uh, I think the Dodgers are fun and I'll enjoy watching them, but I would love to see the giants pull it out. But I would also on that same notion, I know it's a little counterintuitive, I want to see Cody Bellinger hit the ball. I mean, I like the way he approaches a game. He goes about his business the right way. And, and he's fun to watch when he's going well. You talk about the power in that swing. We're going to talk more about the deadline because the Yankees did make some moves as well. And also about the vulnerability of these super teams as you took one down in 2003. But I got to get to the jersey first. Right now, all I can see is black piping around your neck. What team are you wearing? And then I'm going to try and give it a guess. Is that Orioles? You're like yes. propping yourself up a little bit. <laughs> Orioles. Orioles. I'm going to go Cal Ripken. That's a good one. You got it. Yes. There we go. Is, what is that? Three in a row or two in a row? Number eight. Love that. Love that. So uh, what's the story on row. Cal? That's two in a row. Okay. Two in a row. Don't, don't to catch yourself on the back too much right now. <laughs> All right. Oh, yeah. What are you, what are you uh, four for seven now? I think four, you're four for seven. seven. Percentages are going back. I'm turning it around. We're I'm turning it around. Not in my own head anymore. I'm I'm starting to work it out. You're not you're not domed up anymore. No, so not domed up. Turn around. So tell me about Ripken because I, I know you've you've mentioned him in the past uh, as a guy that talk about making adjustments. He would adjust at bat at bat to at bat as you would say. Uh, but what's your experience with him? Uh, maybe specifically with that jersey and uh, just tie it all in. Well, just, you know, I wore this jersey today because of the the, the uh, crazy trade story that I've got, the trade deadline story that I've got, including my, you know, for myself going to the Baltimore Orioles. But uh, being able to play with Cal was a unique experience, man. This guy was the 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 
probably the best baseball thinker I've ever played with or against. Um, he just commanded the game. He knew exactly what moves they were going to make. I always thought that he'd be a great manager just because he's a student of the game and um, studied players, studied pitchers. And like you said, he had the, the craziest batting stances and the, you know, when I used to make a, a change in my stance, I might move my hands just a little bit up and a little bit out. And I felt like it was a foot when it might've been like an inch. Yeah. Cal Ripken would go from standing straight up, bat way up high, you know, wiggling his hands to spread out, you know, hunched over with the bat behind his head. I mean, he made the most drastic moves I've ever seen and he was good with them. I mean, he's successful with them. So, you know, those, those times when you think that you should make a change because you're struggling, uh, Cal took it to the extreme, but, uh, awesome dude to play with. Obviously the records that he set, uh, at shortstop will never, ever be broken. Um, a student of the game, uh, a guy that, uh, is probably one of the most well-respected players, maybe in the history of the game. And when I played with him in his last year in 2001, he would, that's kind of his farewell tour. So he would stay afterwards and sign autographs for thousands, sometimes thousands of fans. He would stay out there till midnight after the game's already over. They would line up, up the concourse and we're up the stairs and out into the concourse. And he'd stand there and sign everybody's autograph, which uh, was a special thing. And he was just a special guy to play with. I mean, I always have that image of that final. What was it? The final was it the record breaking game where he just did the lap around the whole stadium yep. and just basically shook everybody's hand or gave him a high five. And uh, you, you don't really see that as much today. And I understand with social media and all those things, it's a lot more pressure on these players. But you don't see players hanging back, signing thousands of autographs. And uh, that that's pretty special. Did you have any tidbits, anything that Ripken uh, showed you or taught you? I feel like he was probably more of a lead by example guy. Uh, but anything that really stood out when you were coming up? I mean, you were obviously in the game for a while at that point, but still just as somebody admiring a, a future Hall of Famer, what really stood out to you in terms of how he approached the game that maybe rubbed off on you a little bit? Well, I mean, you know, just, just that, just the work ethic, um, you know, Cal Ripken had every right to kind of tail off toward the end of his career, as far as how hard he worked at the game. But when you look at the greatest players, when you look at their talent level, you think, yep, they're just ultra talented, but they're also the hardest workers. And Cal Ripken to the very last game he played was one of the hardest workers. He'd go out there, uh, and take his ground balls just like he did, I'm sure, 20 years ago. You know, he'd go through his whole routine. And uh, I got to observe the way he prepared for games and the way he would study pitchers and the way he uh, would plan his at-bats during the course of a game and, and the way he would, uh, you know, he was about team first. And, and you know, he'd move a guy over. We had to move a guy over and and things like that. So it was just a, he's a complete player in my in my mind I think he'd make a phenomenal manager someday just because he knew about every aspect of the game and uh you know it was one of those guys that you just uh got an opportunity to play with and and it has always stand out to me him and you know George Brett I got to play with George Brett I got to play with Andre Dawson uh these hall of famers that were old school just work so hard they ran hard every single play uh, they ran out every ball and you know that's the way I wanted to play so you mentioned him being potentially or would have been a great manager. I think you would have been a great manager, uh, but obviously you had traveled so much, I assume, for all those years and you have your kids home and it makes sense. I mean, after you're done playing, I mean, who wants to go back through all that again right away? However, 
Bob Nightingale, for, for whatever reason, thought you did want to do that. <laughs> and I have to ask this because this is one of my favorite stories ever. Do you remember how that all went down? Because for, for those who don't know, Marlins had a, a managerial opening. I forget what year it was. And Bob Nightingale, who infamously... I'm pretty sure when they fired Mike Redman is when it happened. Yes, yes. They fired mm-hmm. Mike Redman, which wasn't that long ago. And Bob Nightingale infamously has some, some interesting reports that oftentimes are fact-checked. But this one was, was one of those uh, where I guess you didn't know that you were the new Marlins manager, according to Bob Nightingale. I did not. All of a sudden, my phone out of nowhere starts blowing up like crazy. I mean, I got 40 texts within 10 minutes. And I'm like, the first one says, congrats, man. Is it true? And I'm like, I I don't know what's happening here. I didn't, I wasn't playing anymore. So, and Griffin was, I don't think he was playing at the time. And so I had no idea what these texts meant. And then all of a sudden, really the manager, I didn't think you'd ever manage from one of my friends. I'm like, whoa, wait a second. And then I finally found out what the heck was going on. And Bob Nightingale announced that I was the new manager of the Miami Marlins, which, wow. And I'd never put my name in the hat. I'd always said that, you know, um, managing wasn't for me at that time. I I didn't want to invest that much time because, like you said, my family was uh, going through, you know, Griffin was at Duke playing a lot of baseball and my daughter was getting ready to graduate from Yale and, and Tucker, my youngest was running track and I wanted to experience all those things. So I had no inkling of being a manager in the big leagues whatsoever, but Bob Nightingale did. Where do you think he got that? I have no clue. Maybe he just threw a dart and said, you know what, if this actually happens, I'm going to be the smartest guy on earth because nobody else Nobody else saw this coming. It, it kind of like it, but the thing was, it was also so believable, right? Like, oh, okay, Jeff Conine is the manager stepping right in. In the meantime, like, okay, that makes sense. <laughs> but that was one of my favorite things. And did you have to like, you didn't really have Twitter that at the time or didn't actively use it. Did you have to come out and say like, no, that that's that's not happening? Like, no, did- it, it actually got corrected pretty quickly. I mean, probably an hour later, um, you know, that it, it came out. That's not true. Jeff Conan has not been named the manager, so I didn't have to really do much of anything. But uh, it was kind of fun while it lasted. I mean, I just I didn't because I didn't say anything. It was like, I'm going to let this run out and I'll see what happens. I had to ask you about that because that's one of my one of my favorite stories of just something that happened there with Nightingale. And then I have one trivia question for you before we get back to the deadline because I owe you a couple Jeff Conine trivia questions. So you finished third in Rookie of the Year voting in 93. Uh, do you remember who the two players were who finished ahead of you in the Rookie of the Year voting for the NL? Uh, Mike Piazza and uh, McMichael um, from Atlanta. Damn. I thought Greg McMichael would stump you. <laughs> I couldn't believe he finished ahead of me. That's why I always remember. It's like, <laughs> what? A pitcher? A pitcher. Greg, well, his numbers were pretty pretty awesome, but he was. No, that, no they were. They were. But, you know, as hitters and pitchers, their adversarial relationship, I just never believed that a pitcher would be better than me. So that's how, that's how you got to do what you got to – your mindset to be able to make it in the big leagues. You got to feel that you're better than them. 100%. And he he had good numbers, though. He was had a 2.06 ERA, 19 saves in 91 and two-thirds innings. So pretty solid there as a rookie. But he was a 26-year-old rookie, too, closing out ball games. I believe you would have been right around the same age your rookie season, right? Yep. And then right Mike Piazza just took the world by storm. As another guy, though, that was – a late, late draft pick drafted as a favor, as people always like to say, 
for Tommy Lasorda. So pretty cool to see two. I don't know what round Greg McMichael was drafted in. I'll pull it up right now. Seventh round. So he was a, a lottery pick compared to, to you guys with Piazza right. and, and yourself. <laughs> but pretty cool to see three guys there, not first round picks, not even close to it. And then two guys that were drafted in rounds that don't even exist anymore. Not even close. Piazza was <laughs> 62nd, I believe. I was 58th. So 62nd. Round. 120 rounds between us. Just absolutely insane. But let's get back to the deadline here, too, because there were some other moves that I thought were really interesting. And I want to talk about the Yankees because the Yankees go out and they get two left-handed bats and they really needed left-handed bats. I think they had the worst production from their left-handed hitters in, in all of baseball. Rufnit Odor was their best left-handed hitter so far this season. Uh, that's probably a problem. And uh, they go get couple decent guys, one guy named Joey Gallo, another one named Anthony Rizzo, who, who went 450 upper deck at Marlins Park yesterday in his debut. Those are two great additions, but the Yankees need some pitching help, but I think this really does help them a ton. Uh, what did you think of those two moves, uh, especially with the Rizzo move? I really like, I mean, people will talk about Gallo and that was the steeper price because he has control. But I'm really looking at that Rizzo move, in my opinion, as something that, one, is great for the clubhouse, and two, is just he's a consistent, consistent hitter. Yeah, I mean, both those guys, uh, you talk about adding some thump thump to your lineup. Uh, Wow. And, you know, Yankee Stadium uh, for a left-handed hitter is probably the easiest park in the big leagues to hit a home run because that right field porch is extremely short. Uh, They're going to be hitting pop flies out of that place uh, come home games. But uh, when you look at Anthony Rizzo, what he brings, like you said, to the clubhouse, to that team, uh, leadership, uh, hard work. He's just one of the greatest guys in baseball. Uh, I've got to know him a little bit down here in South Florida, and you know we've done some charity stuff together, but just an awesome, awesome guy. And you know uh, that goes a long way uh, in a clubhouse when you bring a guy like that who's got uh, proven obviously proven veteran, uh, not, not only performance, but leadership and a world series ring to boot. So uh, that's going to be a big boost for that team. And Joey Gallo, I mean, one of the premier power hitters in, in this game. Uh, it was funny when I saw that uh, Joey Gallo uh, going to the outfield is going to be the smallest at six, five, two is going to be the smallest <laughs> of the outfielders in New York, which is in, insane to think about, man. They, they have an offensive line, our defensive line out there. It's, it's actually crazy. And you talk about how big they are and the power hitters. And Rizzo mentioned this in the press conference where he was like, I looked at the lineup card and I realized we're going to be a problem for a lot of pitchers. Imagine you're, you're getting ready to go. And I was saying, I was floating the idea of hitting Rizzo leadoff. I, I just love the way he did it with the Cubs a little bit. The Yankees don't have really a speedster or somebody that really makes sense in the leadoff spot. Rizzo's great like that. They've got the power hitters. So imagine a Rizzo in no order, but just the first five hitters, you have Rizzo, LeMahieu, then you have Stanton, Judge, and Gallo. I mean, that's a headache through the first inning or two innings. And you talk about an offensive line. I mean, that is all guys that are bigger than even DJ LeMahieu is like 6'4". <laughs> like these are guys that they could have a starting five for basketball, no matter what you say, like they are absolutely huge. But also Gallo is a great defender. And I know that people don't really care about that, but does, is that important too? This was a Yankees outfield that they were putting guys like Miguel and Duhar out there in the outfield. I feel like a lot of the defensive, uh, the defensive boost that you get in the outfield, you can't really see it in the numbers. But how many of those balls that maybe could be caught that don't end up getting caught or that fall in the gaps, 
Like, does that make a big difference, you think, for pitchers and stuff in the outfield, or is it more of an infield uh, emphasis when it comes to defense? No, no, it uh, makes a big difference uh, for pitchers, you know, especially with the guys that are, are confident enough to play shallow in the outfield, you know, because a lot of guys are always fearful of the ball over their heads. So they play very deep, <clears throat> and uh, some bloops, line drives will get in front of them for singles, but you add all those together, and you, that equates to runs. So pitchers, you know what, if they give up a hard-hit smoke ball – they're fine with that being a double. They don't want the blue pit to go in front of an outfielder. So when those guys are confident enough to play in, Andrew Jones was the absolute best at that that I ever played against. Uh, Marquise Grissom was pretty amazing as well. They play so shallow, and you hit a line drive up the middle, you think that's a base hit, but he's standing right there, and it's a can of corn. But then he could go back on balls, too. If it had any air underneath it whatsoever, he'd run back there and, and catch it. So that gives the pitchers a lot of confidence. We're on the mound knowing that they've got great defenders in the outfield that – I think they can be more aggressive. They don't have to be uh, as, as timid uh, going through the lineup. And any, you know, uh, boost you can get for outfield play defensively uh, hopes it helps the entire pitching staff. Absolutely. And, and they need a little bit of help with the staff, but they did bolster it a little bit and they get some guys back, potentially Corey Kluber if he's healthy. I mean, the guy threw a no-hitter this year. Uh, they get Luis Severino potentially back. This is an interesting team, and Cashman was able to do it while staying under the luxury tax threshold. He was able to get the teams uh, to kick in money. They gave up a little bit more prospect capital, but got money kicked in, keeps them under the luxury tax threshold. Going back to the center field thing, because that's always been one of my favorite just things to watch and marvel at is defensive center fielders. That's why Ken Griffey's one of my favorite players of all time. I used to love watching Andrew Jones play. Is Andrew Jones the best defensive center fielder we've seen in the last – 30 plus years. I mean, does Griffey compare or is there anybody in your opinion that, that really doesn't get the uh, fair shake or is Andrew Jones really that guy? Uh, for me, Andrew Jones was that guy and um, you know, playing the same division as him, you know, unfortunately I got to see him a lot more than I wanted to. Um, and he robbed a lot of hits from me, from my teammates and you know, you look at Grissom. Grissom was another guy that was a phenomenal defender. Um, for me, you know, Griffey obviously uh, made some highlight real stuff that was uh, in- incredible. But just how shallow Andrew Jones played was probably the most remarkable aspect of his game when you looked out there and saw how much real estate was behind him. And he still covered that. You know, if it had, like I said, if it had any air underneath it at all, he'd run it down. And it was just phenomenal jumps and, and great instincts out there. So for my buck um, and for my experience, Andrew Jones was probably the best out center fielder I, I had played against. And you look at today now, I mean, there's some really good defensive center fielders. But the thing with Jones is that at his peak, he, he was a masher. I mean, he's he, a pounder, too. Yeah, he's a 3,100 guy every year. And uh, talk about a complete player. He's fast, obviously, with playing center field, but he's big too. He, he moved that mass around uh, very effectively and great arm um, on top of all that. He's a five, two player. I think he deserves some hall of fame consideration. I know that he fell off and a big part of it is the longevity and I'm not saying he should get in, but I think he should be one of those guys. That's always in the conversation. You talk about like the Tim Raines that had to sweat it out and finally got in at the end there. Maybe that's something that happens with him. I think he falls a little bit short because of the swing and miss and doesn't have the longevity as much. But also today, we've got some really good center fielders defensively. I marvel at Jackie Bradley Jr. The stuff that he's able to do is unbelievable, but he also is hitting a buck 70. So that's what makes Mike Trout, and I know that's your guy. Mike Trout defensively, 
he seems like a guy, I mean, I haven't really paid attention to this until you mention it because how many people are looking at the defensive positioning of a center fielder? I don't know how far in he plays, but I can give you like in my head, I'm playing right now so many balls over, over Trout's head that he either times up perfectly at the wall, that he runs down. He seems like a guy that has no problem going backwards and, and running balls down. I mean, you know, like you said, I got a man crush on the guy and he's like uh, the best player in baseball for a reason uh, for the size he is. I mean, he's 6'3", 235, 240, whatever he is with his speed um, and that physical package to go out in center field and command it like he does. Uh, that's why he's he is who he is. And, and he's been in the top five of every MVP vote um, that he's played. And unfortunately, this year he's not played many games. So. Uh, probably be the first year he's not, but um, yeah, he's one of those guys that plays shallow, goes back in the ball, has no fear and dominates his position. So to tie in defensive outfield one more time, your son has made some highlight real plays in the outfield this year. He's not going to be the center fielder that runs balls down. I don't know if that's his MO, but he does have some pretty good range. He moves pretty well. He's a corner guy though. He has a rocket for an arm and we've seen him just gun guys down and the Marlins broadcast did a side-by-side of, of your famous throw to gun down uh, JT Snow at home. And then Griffin just throwing a laser beam from right field in South Bend when I was out there, actually, to gun somebody down as well. How cool is that for you to, to see the two side-by-side? Uh, and just, just I can't imagine what that looked like, just being able to watch that video side-by-side with yourself. Yeah, no, it was uh, one of the coolest highlights I'd seen so far of Griffin's career and, and they compared it to my throw, but you know, I was much closer and I one hopped it. He was further back. And like you said, threw a laser in the air all the way. And I love the way the catcher just kind of nonchalantly just stood there knowing that the ball was going to be right on line and right at the last second caught and tagged because the guy was, it was a boom, boom play. And you know, when you can, as an outfielder, when you can make that throw and that, that I think that is equals a home run as far as, uh, adrenaline and and getting into the game, uh, making a great defensive play, I think, boost the whole team like that. And uh, But that was a special one to watch, and I'm glad you were there to see it. That was cool. Yeah, I, I mean, he put on a show for us. I mentioned we were there for three games. I said you should have got on the road. You and Adam should have got on the road with the, with the guy. I, he would have been lights out. I know. We were saying we got to sneak up to Pensacola. They keep getting games canceled and stuff because of the weather. Uh, welcome to Florida four to summers, but yeah, right. <clears throat> hopefully we can, we can get out there at some point because I mean, three games, three home runs, defensive assists. It, it was a blast. And I know Griffin loves South Bend and there's gotta be a level of that in the minor leagues too, right? Where you're playing in a, in a ballpark that's got a lot of fans in there. It's got a lot of energy in the marathon. That is a minor league season. That's got to galvanize you a little bit because you get a little bit more of that energy from the crowd. I feel like. Too. Yeah, absolutely. When you got a home team, a hometown crowd that's behind you and they cheer for you every night. It's fun to play. We're entertainers. Ultimately, we are entertainers. Yes, we're athletes and we're ballplayers, but uh, we're entertainers at the same time. So we feed off that energy of the crowd. And, you know, in Beloit, they had their old stadium and and very few people came out to the uh, ballpark when he was in Beloit. And it's just a a tough uh, environment to get going, to get yourself going. And now in Pensacola, I mean, they're getting four or five thousand a night. So uh, the support there is fantastic. And uh, that helps you perform. Yeah, they just need to uh, get the bats going in Pensacola. Hitting 205 yeah. as a team, uh, it's been a bit of a struggle. But I will say that double A, double a pitching right now, I don't know if it's because of the no minor league season last year where mo- a bunch of guys that maybe would have been in triple A or in the bigs are kind of held back in double A, but still 
the really good prospects are getting thrown up to double A too. So you have just more top end quality. It is crazy the caliber of pitching in double A right now. And, and it's just been wild to see the strikeout rates uh, for these pitchers to see how hard it is for hitters to put up decent numbers. And uh, it, it's a good test. It's definitely a good test up there. And we also saw, I would say in this deadline, as many prospects as I've ever seen traded in the, or at least in the last 10 years, because I feel like the arc of baseball was interesting where before you saw teams very willing to part with prospects to get those guys that they wanted to get. And then over the last 10 years, maybe a little bit less, I feel like baseball got a little bit uh, keen on prospect hugging because they saw teams developing their own talent. They saw teams building it from the ground up. And a lot of organizations were afraid to, to part with their young talent. It seemed like this year that kind of went out the window. We saw a lot of really high caliber prospects traded and for rentals too. I mean, the Mets just traded their first round pick from last year, Pete Crow Armstrong, who looked phenomenal before getting hurt this year for a rental in Javi Baez. I'm assuming they may be uh, pretty positive that they can extend him. I don't know what the details are there. Still seems like a crazy steep price to pay. And then I say my Giants because I'm all in on being a Giants fan now and, and everybody <laughs> knows that. My Giants acquire Chris Bryant, but they gave up some good pieces too in Caleb Killian and Alexander Canario, who for prospect people, you know, those are two guys that have a bit of upside. Chris Bryant's a rental. I want to start there. I don't know if he's going to extend in San Francisco. He's a San Diego guy, but that also is kind of far away, but it is California. Um, that's a really exciting get for me. I love the pickup of Chris Bryant for the Giants. Doesn't match what the Dodgers did, but it does kind of keep them just moving forward. And at the end of the day, the Giants just have to win the division. And the Dodgers could lose one game and be out of the playoffs. So forget about the Max Scherzer acquisition. Exactly. If the Giants hold on, I mean, they're the, the division champion and both wild cards are going to be coming out of that, uh, you know, the National League West. So it's going to be a one, one game dogfight between, you know, L.A. and San Diego, which is a shame, you know, because – uh, both those teams deserve to be in the playoffs. Uh, they both deserve to have at least a fair shake with a three-game series uh, to, to continue on. But the Giants, I'm rooting for them as well. You know, uh, they've kind of got that that old school kind of vibe in their clubhouse. They've got that that mentality of of all team, all hands on deck because they've got so many contributions up and down the lineup as far as offense is concerned. They're number two in home runs, but their leading guys only got 18. So that tells you that I think there were six now with Bryant. He's got 18 as well going into that, that mix. But um, as far as Giants are concerned, there's six guys with over 10 home runs. So everybody's contributing up and down that lineup and their pitching has been surprisingly fantastic. And, you know, that's, that's the key. That's what's really going to take them deep in the postseason uh, is the pitching. And, uh, you know, you talk about the Yankees and, and what they've created as far as their thumpers, and they're going to score a lot of runs, but, uh, you got to look at that pitching staff to see if they're going to be able to get guys out because ultimately good pitching beats good hitting. Especially in the postseason, and that's going to be a really, really tough one for him. But I, I do love what they've seen, what they've gotten from Kevin Gossman. He's looked like an ace this year. I know he had a bad outing last time around, but it's looked like an ace this year. They've got the balance so far through the rotation, and the bullpen's been pretty strong. But there was a lot of trades like we talked about right at the deadline and right up to the last minute. And it's chaotic. I think the rule is, right, you just have to get it on the commissioner's desk before it hits 4 o'clock, right? Yes, before that clock, you got to have it uh, through whatever the wire they call or whatever it is. It's got to be into the commissioner's office before 4 p.m. 
and you were playing with that deadline uh, when you were dealt to my or to Florida uh, back in that was 03, right? Uh, this is a story that is one of my favorites. And uh, can you tell that story about how you just beat the deadline to get traded to what ended up being a really good opportunity for you? Yeah, you know, back then the uh, the deadline was 12 midnight uh, Eastern time. So uh, we had just finished up a series in Seattle. Um, so by the time we get to the airport and getting ready to board the plane, it was probably 5.30, I would say, 6 p.m. So it's 9 p.m. Uh, Eastern time. And we're sitting on the bus getting ready to get on the plane. And uh, uh, Jim Beatty, our GM at the time, gets onto the player's bus. And I was just waiting, waiting for the line to go down as far as getting on the plane. So I was by myself in the back of the bus and Jim Beatty gets on. There's two guys in the front. I can't remember who they were, but he passed by them and he looks at me, starts walking back. And I'm like, "Uh oh, he never gets on this bus ever. So he's coming to talk to me about something. So he sits down in the seat next to me and he says, listen, we got a trade pending uh, upon your approval to go back to the Florida Marlins. And I'm like, wait, what? He's like, yeah, Uh, they're. I think he told me they're, you know, a game or two games out of the wild card at the point. Mike Lowell had just gotten hit by a pitch, broke his hand that day, and they were desperate. They wanted to go out and get somebody to, to replace Mikey in that lineup. And they tagged me. They wanted me to come back to Florida and fill that role. So, but there was a little caveat in the whole deal is that I had one more year left on my Baltimore Orioles deal, and they wanted me to break that up into two years. So they didn't have quite the hit salary wise uh, in during one season. And there was some negotiating to go on. So I got on the plane and I'm going to be in the air. I'm going to be in the air during the deadline. So thank God they had those, you know, the phones in the back of the headrest. Uh, you know, I, I first call my wife, Cindy, and I'm like, listen, this is what's happening. And she couldn't believe it. She's like, oh, my God, we're going to you're going to come back to Florida. I'm like, well, not yet, because they have to have some negotiating to go on. But I'm getting ready to get on the plane. So I was had her call my agent, Michael, who was uh, also in the air when all this was happening. He was flying back from Oklahoma City, I think, back to California. So he's, he was going to be on the ground before the deadline. Um, but Cindy was on the phone, kind of getting phone calls from me from the airplane, getting phone calls from Michael and taking phone calls from the front office people from the Marlins trying to negotiate this whole thing while I'm over, you know, North Dakota going from Seattle to Baltimore. So it was crazy. Uh, I don't know how many calls I made. I don't know how much money I actually spent on that, uh, my credit card on that, that phone bill. It was probably uh, quite um, a significant dollar amount, but it came down to literally 11.58. I know I got on the phone with uh, Larry Beinfest, who was the GM of the Marlins at the time. And he goes, Jeff, he goes, I have two minutes to get this in. Is it a yes or is it a no? And I was seriously wavering that long uh, with all these negotiations going on. And I finally said, yes, let's do it. And he didn't say goodbye, nothing. He just left because he had, like you said, he had to get that on the commissioner's desk before midnight or else I wouldn't have been uh, eligible for the uh, postseason roster. And this is the August deadline, not the July deadline. So this was August 31st at midnight. So They've since obviously changed that. So things like this don't happen. It's a four o'clock deadline now. So they're, uh, they get things done earlier in the day, but um, that was the craziest thing. And I was on a plane the next day down to Florida and I was a Marlin um, like 12 hours later. And you won the world series. And that, that's the day it was 2003. 
you played the 25 games in the rest of the regular season and then played a huge part in the Marlins winning the World Series in 03. And you probably had no clue that that was going to happen, right? Because there was no interleague play yet. Or was there interleague play yet in 03? Yeah, there was interleague play. But, you know, when you're in the American League, you know, you play whatever National League teams you do that year, but you don't really follow what's going on in the National League. You're in your own division. You're kind of concentrated on what's going on in the American League. So I had no idea who was on the Marlins team, really. I didn't know where they were in the standings. You know, obviously I got there and I uh, shoot, there were a game and a half out or something like that. I'm like, oh, it was pretty close. But anything can happen in a month, you know. Um, and I will say it was probably the most fun I've ever had on a baseball field that month and into the playoffs. The the guys there that were uh, on the bench were unbelievable. You know, Jack McKeon kind of managed an American League type lineup. His same eight guys played every single day, ran them out there every single day. And the bench guys knew that they might get in once every seven days, 10 days, just to get some bats here or there. But there are cheerleaders and they knew their roles and they supported us uh, so amazingly. It was just a, a, the greatest bunch of guys. We had the most fun. And that was a big part of our championship run and why we won. And that was a young team, average age, 27 years old. Uh, on the offensive side of things, on the pitching side, average age 26 years old. So just incredibly, incredibly young. And my favorite thing is that you have a young Dontrell Willis, you have a young Josh Beckett, you have a young Miguel Cabrera, Derek Lee was 27. What a year Derek Lee had that year as well. Huge. And then, I mean, the, the oldest guy, the oldest regular on that roster was a 31-year-old Pudge Rodriguez, which is just absolutely incredible to, to really think about there. So when you step foot there, did you feel like the, the old veteran guy at, at 37 years old at that point? Like what, what was the vibe stepping foot into uh, an, an, a situation here where there's not that many games left. This team's played already 120 something games together. And uh, you're, you're kind of the older guy on the roster. Kind of the older guy. Heck, a couple of those guys could have been my kids. I mean, Miguel was only, he was 17 years my junior, and I think uh, Dontrell might have been 21 or 22 at that time. So, um, yeah, I was the old man of the sea kind of going in and, and trying to lend some uh, leadership to a, a very young team. But these guys, you know, they didn't need a whole lot. They played the game hard. They played the game the right way. And I think they were just having so much fun. They didn't realize that they were in a playoff run that they may never get into again. I mean, I don't even think that Miguel Cabrera knew that it was the world series or it was the second week of the season. He just, that's, that was the, the beauty of that team is these young guys performed at a level that they would have if it was playoffs or not playoffs. They just cheated it as a regular game. And, you know, when you look at a, a guy named Josh Beckett, that, you know, uh, there is no more confident pitcher in the game at that time than, than Josh Beckett, even at his young age, uh, Miguel Cabrera, he just, the guy could flat out hit and he knew it and it didn't matter who's on the mound. You know, the Roger Clemens world series at bat was one of the greatest at bats I've ever seen. Oh, And he takes him deep opposite field. And after getting dusted and, and put on his butt basically. And uh, the guy was just a gamer, right. From that, that moment on. He's encroaching on 500. He's encroaching on 3000. He'll get 500 first home runs. That is. And, uh, he's actually on fire right now, which is crazy because it's it's tough. You can see him laboring. His knees are are kind of going. He's had a lot of knee surgeries. But over his last 
90 games or something like that. I, no, I believe it was his last 30 games. He's hitting over 300. He's got five homers. He's driven in 27 runs. He's been great. So I'm hoping he can keep it rolling. 500 home runs for him, 3,000 hits. I mean, he's a first ballot Hall of Famer. Um, and it's pretty cool in hindsight now to look at it. Like, of course, you knew you were playing with a kid that was going to be really special at that point. But now, you know, almost 20 years later, did you? Are, you're probably not at all surprised, but it's still pretty incredible that he's going to be a first ballot Hall of Famer. Yeah, <clears throat> you know, you never like the longevity factor is the one thing that uh, separates Hall of Famers from a lot of guys that don't make it to the Hall of Fame, and you just don't know if a guy's going to stay healthy enough to have those kind of amass those kind of numbers. But I knew he was <clears throat> incredibly special, not just from our World Series year, but I played with him the next two years, 04 and 05, and he was just one of the best right-handed hitters in the game uh, period. That's all there was to it. So I knew that we were looking at something special here. And I knew that if he had health on his side, he's going to amass some, some huge numbers. And, and we're seeing it now. And just a, a good guy too, a good guy to have on your team. And uh, I'm not surprised he is where he is right now. So to tie it all in now with, with the present as well, because again, I was losing my mind a little bit on the Dodgers and uh, whether they were beatable or not. And, you guys in 03 beat a very ridiculously good Yankees team in six, not in seven, in six. And for those who may not remember, I think it's pretty easy to remember these rosters, but this Yankees team, just to go through the lineup, Jorge Posada, who had a 922 OPS that year, Jason Giambi had a 939 OPS with 41 homers. Then you had Alfonso Soriano with 38 homers. You had that guy, Derek Jeter. Then you had Robin Ventura, Hideki Matsui, Bernie Williams, Raul Mondesi, Nick Johnson, and then even the bench, Ruben Sierra, Aaron Boone. It's just crazy. And then to get to the pitching side, Mike Mussina, David Wells, Roger Clemens, Andy Pettit, Jeff Weaver, Mariano Rivera. I mean, this is crazy. Absolutely crazy. And they lose in six. Six. So, how I guess just somehow tie this into the Dodgers and explain to me why this means the Dodgers are vulnerable. <laughs> well, just that anything can happen in a short series. And uh, I mean, seven games isn't really a short series, but it's not about the best team going into the playoffs. It's the hottest team. And we were the hottest team. We had more confidence than anybody going in. Uh, we just knew how to win baseball games. It didn't matter who we were playing against. Um, it didn't matter. We're going to Yankee stadium, you know, the hallowed ground of Yankee stadium. And if you're going to win a world series championship, what better place, if you can't do it at home, what better place to do it than uh, old Yankee stadium, which was uh, very, very special. But like I said, nobody knew that we were playing the Yankees, the great Yankees and one of the greatest teams that I played against. That was at the tail end of their run. That was just, you know, started in 96 for me, 96 to 03. Uh, were probably the, the best teams I'd ever played against, you know, 99, 2000, 2001, those American League teams. I think they won four out of five World Series in that five-year span were the best teams I ever played against. And uh, this was one of those up there uh, as one of the greatest teams. But didn't matter. Didn't matter the 03 Marlins. Uh, we were the lowly fish. Nobody gave us a, <laughs> uh, a, a chance against anybody, let alone the Yankees at Yankee Stadium. But we did it. The team that kind of reminds me a little bit, a little bit of that 03 Marlins team, if, if I had to pick one that could have a little bit of that vibe, it's the Brewers. 
I think the Brewers could be a sneaky option here. It obviously wouldn't be in the World Series. They'd have to take them down in the NLCS. But the Brewers have been really interesting. And you talk about the three pitchers. That's kind of what inspired this as well, is the Marlins ended up having those three pitchers. I think at the time we didn't really know that they were going to have three guys that would be that dominant. But now in hindsight, it makes sense that they were dominant through the postseason because guys like Beckett and even Willis and other options ended up having really, really good careers. I always talk about the Woodruff Peralta Burns three-headed monster for the Brewers, but the Brewers have a six have six starting pitchers that have made at least 10 starts, all of which have an ERA under four. And I mean, it, when, when you have something like that going and then some guy named Josh Hader in the back of your bullpen, Devin Williams was the rookie of the year last year as a reliever and is now settling back in and looks more like Devin Williams. Then the offense, you know, it's not the most explosive offense in the world, but they go out and get a 25-year-old Willie Adamas from the Rays, who has been just out of this world since he left the trop. So he was a career, I think it was something like 680 OPS guy, something terrible at the trop, and then fantastic on the on the road. And they trade him to the Brewers, and now he's got a 938 OPS. He's hitting 301. So something was off with him at the trap. I don't know if it was the white ceilings. I don't know what it was. He hated hitting there. He's been great. Then you got that guy, Christian Yelich, who's been battling injuries. But if he can get healthy and get going, he is a back-to-back MVP type of guy. And they've got a lot of other pieces. They've got their catcher in Omar Narvaez. Does this team have enough to be able to make a run with those three pitchers and you know some interesting options in that lineup, they go and get some guys as well. They got Eduardo Escobar, who sneakily has 20 plus home runs. Do they have enough? I think they do. Uh, when you look at the pitching staff, that's where I looked first. And when you got three studs at the top of the rotation, uh, like I've always said, that's what you need to be successful in the postseason. But you, you've also got backups. So you've got three other guys you said have made 10 plus starts. And in the postseason, it's all hands on deck. So those guys go to the bullpen. So now you've got fresh arms and starter arms that okay, they don't have to start a game and go five, six innings. They can go out and blow it out for one inning. And now their velocity is going to be much higher. They're going to be much more aggressive. So um, it's going to be an interesting collection of arms, especially for the Brewers. And when, when you get that offense going, you know, Yelich in particular, you know, he's got some time to get it going again and get, get right. And when that spark happens, the Brewers are going to be a very dangerous team. I almost think with the Yelich case, and I was saying the same thing with DeGrom because DeGrom just unfortunately had another setback. And I feel like they keep just trying to rush him back out there and he's got a back and he's got a lat and then it's his it's shoulder. Like it seems like his body's yelling at him. Give me a break. Hopefully they give him that break. They, they're going to shut him down for two more weeks with Yelich too. Yelich has still been the guy that can get on base. He's getting on base at a 382 clip, despite the fact he's only hitting 235 and he only has the six home runs. I don't know if you've ever dealt with any back injuries, but what can you talk about? I'm sure through your career, you've had some sort of issues or new uh, teammate that had some issues with that. I feel like it's just got to be the back sapping his power a little bit, right? It's hard to have confidence in cutting it loose when you've got some back discomfort. A back injury is the most debilitating injury for a hitter because that's where all your power comes from. It's all rotation. So, you know, you can kind of fudge a knee or a quad or, you know, even shoulder here or there. But when you got the core of your entire body, the core of your entire power source is sketchy or it's not 100%, that is going to throw off your entire swing. And like you said, if you can't fire with 100% confidence, your whole game is going to be off. Your whole everything, batting average, 
uh, the power, especially, you know, he's got six home runs this year, but when that, that power source is taken away, it affects everything. But like you said, he's got that good eye still. He knows how to work a walk. He gets on base at 380. So if that back gets healthy and he's got 100% confidence in that to let loose again, look out because he's going to take off. He's going to have a big end of the season. And I really feel like subconsciously too, even if you don't feel like you're thinking about your back, you're, you're almost holding it. Uh, you're withholding some of that just cut loose type of swing, whether you know it or not, when you're dealing with something like that. And that's why I want Yelich. He's back on the 10 day IL. I think that's fine. The Brewers are just really just cruising right now. They're 62 and 42. Obviously you want to get him back soon, but he could probably sit for two weeks, get right. And I don't think that they're going to really be losing their lead in the division. And if they do, then maybe you start to expedite it a little bit. But I, I think they'll be just fine. And they're getting Lorenzo Kane going again. And, uh, you know, that, that should help them a little bit, too, with the depth in the outfield. Um, so I, I'm really interested in the Brewers. I think that they can pull something off. And getting Eduardo Escobar there, a utility guy that's got 20, I believe it's 22 homers. I mean, that just furthers the, the help and reinforcement with some of the offensive uh, potential that you can have there. Uh, the last thing I want to ask you, because I asked you this via text, and uh, again, it kind of ties back to uh, what the NL looks like. A lot of good teams out there. I, I still think the Giants can do it. The Padres, they're praying right now that Fernando Tatis Jr. is okay. Uh, he, he, went, he went down in a heap yesterday after he tried to avoid a tag and a slide in that same shoulder again. Uh, popped out, I'm assuming it looked like it, because it didn't look like it was a high-impact injury. He was sliding, you know, that arm kind of dragged back, yep. but it didn't look like egregious by any means, but he looked like he was in a ton of pain. And that kind of tells me that that shoulder probably needs to be fixed, whether it's now or at the end of the season, or else it's just going to keep popping out. Uh, that's a concern, obviously. That's not a guy that you replace or can even get close to replacing. But if he comes back, the Padres are a threat. And you obviously have the Giants, the Padres, the Brewers are a sneaky team. The Mets, they go get Javi Baez. I mean, he's not the most consistent guy in the world, but gives you star power, defense, gives you offensive potential there too. There's a lot of teams that are a threat here. The Dodgers are far and away the favorites. You're t you told me you'd take the field over the Dodgers out of the National League. Do you stand by that? I do. I do. I really do because um, I just know that – Anything can happen in the postseason. Uh, I, like you said, you look at on paper, yes, the Dodgers are the powerhouse. They're the favorites. But um, I'm going to look at one of these other teams you don't really expect. Maybe the Brewers, like you said, or um, the Giants still, they intrigue me with that, that consistency that they had this whole season. They just, to me, that team is finding ways to get it done and get it done in, in big ways. And I don't think they're ever out of a game with, with the offense, the way that's been firing and the pitching staff, the way they've been throwing, they're never out of game. So I don't know. I think both of those teams are, are, are scary in the national league. And then, you know, the American league, you got all kinds of options going on over there. Chicago white Sox, uh, they're juggernaut going in with their arms that they have. Um, going into the postseason, they're going to be tough to beat. Uh, the Boston Red Sox are back, and they're they're doing uh, really amazing things. So um, it's going to be a fun postseason, man. I'm looking forward to it. We didn't even talk about the White Sox. I mean, getting Craig Kimbrell on top of Liam Hendricks, who is already a phenomenal closer. I, I mean, Kimbrell is fantastic. <laughs> His looks like the guy he's always looked like. Uh, they're going to be a problem, too. And I'm really excited. They get healthy. You talked about in the last episode, their biggest acquisitions offensively come from the IL, Eloy Jimenez, Luis Robert, 
but I was shocked, shocked to see them trade Nick Madrigal for who's like your throwback type of player. I know that's probably a guy you like as well, Madrigal, who's just yep. a grinder, you know, just consistent hitter. I know he's on the IL for the rest of the year with a torn hammy, but I was shocked to see him traded for uh, Craig Kimbrell there. Yeah, Madrigal, you know, it's been talked about uh, the number one pick and, and kind of the future of your organization. They, they cut ties. And that goes to show you in baseball, some of these organizations are, we need it now. We want to do it now. We're not going to wait for Madrigal to develop into what could be a stellar career, but it may not be. So if they've got an opportunity now to do it, to get an arm like Kimbrel, who is back on track, like you said, he's got like a 0.67 whip. I mean, half of uh, hits per innings pitched. I mean, this guy is on fire. And, you know, he had a couple subpar years where he was not that good. Um, but when he was good before that, he's one of the most dominant closers we've ever seen in this game. And he's back on track and he's back to that guy. And when you have an opportunity to, to shut down the ninth inning like he can, and you put Liam, the other guy, in, in the eighth. I mean, now you're, you're cutting the game down to a, a six-inning game, seven-inning game possibly, and then it's over. You can't beat these guys. It's over, and they've, they've got the starting pitching too, and they've got the offense. That, that's a team that it's, it's going to be more so on the experience side, right? You know, how are they going to be able to handle the postseason? But I kind of like the fearless uh, attitude that the Tim Andersons have. And then you got Tony LaRusa there. If anybody's going to be comfortable in the postseason and isn't really going to blink, it's, it's Tony freaking LaRusa. So yep. you said this is going to be a fun postseason. This is going to be a fun postseason, and we're going to have a lot of content, a lot of episodes, a lot of fun things to discuss there. Uh, I'm going to have to grill you in the next episode of who can come out of the AL, but this is going to be a ton of fun. I'm glad you said the field over the Dodgers. Um, I'm hoping that's the case. It's going to be a lot of fun, and uh, I'm going to go Brewers Dark Horse. Uh, I want to see your prediction out of the NL. Uh, You said Giants, I'm going to assume, right, as we wrap up here? Yeah, I'm going to go Giants. I, I think like it's it. their year. Um, it's been a while since they've been there. And I think, I don't know, that there's something that magic happens out at that stadium uh, during the course of the year. They've got one of the best fan bases in all of oh, baseball. Yeah. And, and they've been there. That org's been there. And a lot of those players have been there. And, and I think that's a, important too. Yeah, they got a special team. And I'm going to go with the Giants. And also, the last thing that just came to my head is in 03, you guys traded somebody, the Marlins traded somebody. I guess you might not have been there yet at the time. But they traded their number one overall pick, a guy named Adrian Gonzalez, for Uguith Urbina. And Urbina ended up really helping that run, too. Uh, Urbina is now, I believe, in prison. Uh, but, <laughs> but he uh, did help make that run uh, for the World Series in, in 03. I believe it was attempted murder with a chainsaw was was the the uh machete or chainsaw or something like that something like that but you know what he did really close games out well in 03 he was a supremely confident guy you know Braden Looper I guess faltered a little bit toward the end he was a lights out guy early on but he started struggling and they wanted to go out and get a guy that had some experience and uh that had supreme confidence and they got Urbina who fit the bill just perfectly and he fit into our team great and and did a phenomenal job for us yeah and and, uh you know there's a lot of a lot of closer jokes i wanted to make but i'm not going to make it so uh, (laughs) that was great for the marlins to be able to get that acquisition i don't think you undo it even though you had to give up an adrian gonzalez uh but you don't undo it and i think that's what we're seeing a lot of teams do here but only one of them can make that right move that helped them get to the world series we're going to see who it is and uh, we'll be talking about it the whole way and i'm sure it's going to invoke a lot of 
great memories from your postseason run. We are embargoing the Steve Bartman story until the postseason. <laughs> it's going to come. People are waiting for it. We're going to embargo the Steve Bartman, but that's going to come. We're going to have a lot of postseason stories on the way, uh, but that'll do it for this iteration of Inside the Box with Jeff Conine. Last episode of July. It's July 31st. We're heading into August. It's the home stretch. Dog days of the summer. Dog days are coming up. We're getting to the postseason. Can't wait for it, man. It's going to be a fun, uh, like we said, it's going to be a fun stretch to get to the postseason. The postseason might be one of the most exciting we've seen in a long time. We'll talk to you next week.